the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hail to the Redskins. That's a song that Washington football fans used to sing every Sunday. But a couple of years ago, as you probably know, the name was changed because after about 80 years, it was considered racist. It was actually referred to as the Washington football team for a couple of years there. Then they somehow came up with Commanders. Daniel Snyder owned the team and became known as probably the worst team owner in North America for a lot of reasons. But the league finally got rid of him. And now there's a group that has a petition circulating to change the name back to Redskins. Now, is this a group that just includes some idiot fans who put their Redskins jerseys on and get drunk every Sunday? Nope. It's called the Native American Guardians Association. And it has contacted the new owners to demand that the name be changed back to the Redskins. It's the Reclaim the Name campaign. And they have a petition out there. As of Monday night, they had over 60,000 signatures. I don't know what it is now. The organization's slogan is Educate, Not Eradicate. And according to the website, Native American Guardians Association is a nonprofit organization advocating for increased education about Native Americans, comma, especially in public educational institutions and greater recognition of Native American heritage through the high-profile venues of sports and other public platforms. So they want to use teams and stadiums to promote Native American history. Imagine the nerve of these actual Native Americans not listening to liberal white people who appointed themselves to be in charge of deciding what's offensive to them. The nerve of those Native Americans. Sports Illustrated did a poll several years ago, and North Americans overwhelmingly said that they weren't offended by nicknames, but that also wasn't good enough for liberals, so eventually we got commanders. It'll be interesting to see how long that name stands and where this goes. Meanwhile, when we come back, the big guy went to the Grand Canyon yesterday, made an idiot of himself in an interview on the Weather Channel. Joe's on a climate hysteria tour. We'll talk to Gregory Wrightstone. He's a geologist and executive director of the CO2 Coalition. We'll talk to him about how much he's buying of what Joe's out there selling. And in our second half hour, we're going to talk about an insurrection. And it's one that didn't happen on January 6th. And it did happen a few miles from where I'm sitting right now. Stick around. Well, Joe Biden took some time off from uh, lying about his son Hunter yesterday, traveled to the Grand Canyon where he did an interview on the Weather Channel and lied about the climate crisis. Gregory Wrightstone uh, is a geologist, happens to be from Pittsburgh, by the way. He's also the executive director of the CO2 Coalition and the author of Inconvenient Facts, the science Al Gore doesn't want you to know. He joins us now. Greg, thanks for being here. Yeah, things are getting scary, uh there's a lot that can go wrong if he does declare a climate crisis. 
uh, gives him a lot of powers uh, that he doesn't have right now, and to go extra legislative just by enacting things using um, the 1976 uh, uh, National Crisis Act or whatever the heck it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, well, he said yesterday uh, on that Weather Channel interview that he kind of, sort of, declared a national emergency. Uh, CNN called him out, uh, said he hadn't. So, again, why would that be a big deal for liberals? Because he could just become king and start making proclamations? Exactly. Right now, from what I can see, I'm, I've been. It, it's pretty scary. Right now, it looks like there could be a 130 or more new powers that he gets. Um, there are lots of things he can do. I mean, things that I've looked at that could be done. You know, he could impose a national maximum speed limit of 55, like it was done during the uh, the oil crisis back in the late 70s. How would that go over in on, Actually, in I had forgotten about that beauty. I'm surprised we haven't seen that talked about more. As people wanting yeah. that to come back. Or he could set, he could make it, because this, this, this would be uh, a, a national crisis that allows him to do things like set a, a national uh, temperature for your homes. It'd be hard to enforce in your own homes unless you have a smart meter. Mm-hmm. But he could say that offices all need to comply to this. What they're proposing is a 78-degree uh, temperature for mm-hmm. offices. And I could see, imagine, I'm, I'm in Arlington, Virginia, with our apartment building. And he could say, if you're, if you're managing an apartment building, you know, you can't have your uh, air con- you know, you've got to set it to 78 degrees. And then there will be, a, of course, a colder temperature uh, for your, for your uh, winter heating. Uh, so we'll all freeze to death. Uh, so there's a lot of things that come into this one if he does and I, I think he's going to it sure is everything I'm looking at it looks like that uh, so basically I, I had people telling me that there's going to be a, a climate lockdown similar to what we did with the COVID lockdown uh, they were able to do it with that and that was a, a national emergency when of course this is a climate crisis and it's an existential threat to humanity oh it's the worst thing uh, ever yeah yeah, well, not actually. We we just published a, a paper in the Midwest. It was called uh, the American Midwest, uh, America's Breadbasket. Uh, people are, are, life is good and getting better. And we see that everywhere we look. We did a Pennsylvania report two years ago. We, we see by almost every metric, ecosystems are thriving and prospering and humanity's benefiting. That's the story. Um, deserts are actually shrinking, not expanding, and forest fires globally are are in decline. And we can we can talk about the Hawaii fires in a bit yeah. if we have time. Mm-hmm. But uh, it just almost everything they're telling you is getting worse is not. I mean, this hurricane season, you look right now on the hurricane, there's not one tropical depression out there uh, that's, you know, they were predicting a terrible hurricane season. But, you know, maybe, maybe it will come to pass that we have some bad hurricanes it, you know it's historically that happens but uh with things like tornadoes are in significant decline drought is in decline agricultural production we saw it in pennsylvania and every state we've looked at in every nation around the world we're breaking crop growth records because of the combination of modest warming and more co2 and then that's benefited by nitrogen nitrogen fertilizer they're talking about getting rid of nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, since the 1950s, some 30% of crop in- increases 
are attributed to increases in nitrogen fertilizer. And they're saying, well, yeah, we can't have that anymore because of climate change. Yeah, but what is, what uh, is nitrogen fertilizer? How is that destroying the planet? Well, one of the byproducts, turns out, is nitrous oxide. Uh, and we actually did a, a very scientific report on the global warming potential of nitrous oxide. And it's, it's incredibly small. The warming potential from CO2 is really small, and nitrous oxide uh, is, is way, 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 way less than that. In fact, we, we do, in our paper, we found that not, nitrous oxide levels won't double for more than 400 years. Uh, and, and again, the, the warming effect is an infinitesimally small. Uh, so they're they're trying to get rid. Of, they're, they're trying to they're they're trying to find problems and then impose solutions to non-existent problems. Yeah. And if you look at it, it's really an anti-human agenda is what they're proposing, John, because they're proposing to decrease CO2, which is driving crop growth. That'll lessen crop growth. They just recently proposed looking at uh, geoengineering to block the sun, which would de- decrease crop growth. Now get rid of nitrogen fertilizer. These would lead to famine and crop failure and possibly starvation for upwards of millions of people. It's not good. It's, it's like, again, I'll repeat, I'm not saying this lightly. It just looks like an anti-human agenda, which, after all, maybe that's what they're after. Yeah, it is very strange. I, I, I don't understand um, how it is that, that there are so many, so many sheep involved in this where people – uh, the president will get out there and say that, you know, the climate change is the worst threat America faces right now. And I don't know. I don't put a number on it. I guess half the people in the country are nodding their head in agreement. That's right, Joe. we gotta, we got to do something about that. Well, and, you, know, you know, you can't hardly blame people, John, because that's all they've heard. I know. People like me. Uh, we, we just brought on... We just brought uh, Dr. John Clauser onto our board of directors. He's the 2022 uh, Nobel Laureate in Physics. Uh, he got up and, and he said, you know, there is no climate crisis and that we're, uh, we shouldn't worry about this and we should be careful when we talk about uh, imposing trillions of dollars of spending into something that's, that's really unsettled. And he calls it an unsettled science is what we're saying. And, and they're, they're silencing him. He was supposed to speak before the International Monetary Fund last Thursday, and he got canceled the night before because they, they found out about his views on climate change. Uh, he was honored at the White House. This is actually pretty funny. He was honored at the White House, and after the uh, ceremony, this was two months ago, uh, he shook Joe Biden's hand, and he said, your, your science that you're using for energy and climate is just wrong. And Joe Biden got angry at him. And he said, you're just spouting right-wing science. Yeah, so Joe yeah. Biden's lecturing the current Nobel laureate in physics on science. It, 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 it's too well, rich. you're just not allowed to disagree. It's just not permitted. Yeah. And well, I've got the big story we have in my next book, John. You talked about my first book, Inconvenient Facts. Yeah. This next book hopefully will be published uh, hopefully by the end of September. The title is a very convenient warming, how modest warming and more CO2 is benefiting humanity. That's the story. Mm-hmm. That's the story that people need to hear are the benefits of warming and more CO2. And but, that's what we're experiencing. But um, the uh, the pushback you get on that is from people who think, well, hey, first of all, you're out of your mind. 
And number two, I've I've been hearing this for years that CO two is terrible. What do you mean it's good? And then the other one is, the other thing is, um, well, you're obviously funded by the uh, the oil companies, isn't that what you get to? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, we're oil shells, uh, but we don't. Uh, as far as I know, I, and I look at every, I, we don't get funding from oil companies. But uh, what we do see is a huge response from everyday people. Uh, 99, and I just did this for our mid-year report, 99.5% of our donors are individual citizens. And they're responding. They're, they're loving what we're doing because we're pushing back on climate. And we've also put, we're also pushing back on education, science education in America. We've created CO2LearningCenter.com. And at the CO2 Learning Center, we provide scientific we call them comic books, entertaining and informative books, uh, and, and also videos, scientific videos that are fascinating, done anime style. And the best part is we've created lesson plans uh, to go along with each one of these for homeschooling parents. So uh, it, those lesson plans were created by Dr. Sharon Camp, Ph.D. in chemistry. She's an AP science teacher and reader. She created these great lesson plans. And so the homeschool community is just, uh, we just launched this less than a month ago. And so it's just, you're one of the fir- first to hear about it. Uh, but it's CO2LearningCenter.com. It's, oh. it's a wonderful resource. I just, I, I, it's just hard to imagine the average public school teacher looking at the title uh, of that and saying, yeah, I, I want to sign up for that. How do you get them to, because uh, to them it's heresy, it's, it's, uh, it it's, is. You can't teach this to these innocent young children. They're going to go out and ruin the planet. Well, we were we attended the National Science Teaching Association's annual convention in March, and they actually this is fourteen thousand people that attended. They actually kicked physically had security come down and kicked us out of the convention. <laughs> We've got scientific materials, and we because we accused them of uh, teaching science about climate change using indoctrination and groupthink. We're teaching critical thinking skills and the scientific method, and they didn't like that. They actually kicked us out. And bear in mind, I'm there. I'm a geologist, a scientist. I'm there with three ladies, uh, all of them with PhDs in various scientific topics. And you know they have their they have their thugs come down. Uh, their their chief operating officer and another fellow accompanied with security. They said you must remove you must remove those materials. And I said heck no, that's what we're here for. Uh, and they kicked us out. And that that's that's how far they go that they need to silence amazing uh, PhDs in science and and us and our uh, our, our, our our list of members. And board of directors is amazing, uh, mostly PhDs. This is, this is the CO2 coalition, right? CO2coalition.org. Yeah. Uh, again, we just we, just the, the the current Nobel laureate in physics just joined our board last month. We're uh, we're talking to Greg Gregory Wrightstone, um, and he is the uh, executive director of the CO2 coalition. So yesterday, um, Joe was talking about a, the the climate crisis and uh, how he's he was trying to convince i guess the liberals who don't think he's doing enough that he's out there really pushing this stuff um and i see that uh, gas prices are headed back up to four dollars a gallon um 
and he's still pushing this stuff. He's talking about no drilling off either coast. And do we have any oil left in the reserves for Joe to use to bring the price of gas down anytime soon? Especially if he's going to keep pushing for preventing oil from being taken out of the ground. The good news, he he can do that mainly the Gulf of Mexico because that's almost all. It's entirely federally controlled properties. The good news is. Where the big oil production has come is the Permian Basin, uh, Montana, the Dakotas, uh, and that's all on privately held property, almost all of it, just as Pennsylvania uh, is is on the, the natural gas development in the Utica and the Marcellus Shales are, are privately held property. So the, gover- the federal government has little to do, but what they can do is stifle the natural gas production in Pennsylvania by limiting pipeline development and permits of pipelines, because what's the good of of fracking and developing vast quantities of natural gas if it's just going to sit there and not be used? And that's why we have so much gas in Pennsylvania that's stranded. It's needed greatly in New England, but both New Jersey and New York have bans on pipelines, so that you know we're locked up. And then the Jones Act doesn't allow natural gas LNG deliveries to come from Louisiana and Texas and land in Boston. And that's because the Jones Act requires American-flagged and American-staffed tankers uh, to be, well, they they need to be American-staffed, and there aren't any. Uh, They're all foreign, so they're forced to buy liquefied natural gas in Boston and New England from Algeria. That makes sense, uh, yeah. You wouldn't want yeah. to buy it from Louisiana or Pennsylvania. You want to make sure you buy it from Algeria. What, at, what could go wrong? At half more? the price. At half the price. Wow. Um, yeah, I, you, you, we've talked. You and I have talked yeah. before about this the vast is... quantities of the Marcellus. Yeah, it's yeah. Just well, I have the largest natural gas field in the world. Yeah, I have about a couple minutes left. I didn't want to let you go without talking about the fires in Maui. Um, I'm already seeing that it, that's a result of. Uh, climate change, or I don't know if it's global warming or climate change. I always get confused, but it's one of those two, isn't it? Yeah, no, not hardly. In fact, if we look at at uh, Maui and Hawaii, we I've learned a lot just over the last day or so after looking at this, but fires are a common occurrence every year in Hawaii, and it's on the western side of the islands. Uh, the eastern side of the the, the prevailing trade winds come up across the east and they dump the water and then the other side of the island it's of course it's got a, a rain window a precipitation window that's dry and so the problem on maui and these other islands were the the last six months or so have actually been cooler than normal and wetter than normal and so what that did was accelerate uh, grass and brush growth in those areas and so the res- and then it, you can grow, and, and a lot of these are invasive species of grasses that burn uh, and take over areas and burn a lot quicker. And you can you can dry out even right after a rainstorm. Grasslands can dry out within a matter of a couple of hours with hot temperatures. And so this is so we've got here high winds, sixty and seventy miles an hour from Hurricane, hurricane Dora that downed electric lines and transformer sparks uh, that uh, set a lot of these fires. Uh, two months ago, they had they had arrested people arson in Hawaii and Maui. Uh, we haven't seen any indication that that's the case here, but we know what happened two months ago. Uh, so it's a combination of of accelerated growth of brush and grass on the western side of Maui, 
and then the dry conditions um, that they're in right now. But well, again, the, the, it's been wet and, yeah. and cool for the last several months. Well, I uh, always appreciate you having on having you on, uh, Greg, to uh, give us the other side of the issue here, and we'll talk again. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that's Gregory Wrightstone, and uh, he's the director of the executive director of the CO two Coalition. I'll be right back. Well, insurrection is a word that's been thrown around a lot the last couple of years. You may or may not agree that uh, that's what happened at the Capitol back on January sixth. Uh, 2021, you know, may not agree that that qualifies as one, but you may also uh, not be aware that a major insurrection, the second biggest in American history, happened just a few miles from where I'm sitting right now. Brady Kreitzer is a history professor at Robert Morris University. He's written a book called Whiskey Rebellion, A Distilled History of an American Crisis, and he joins us now. Brady, thanks for coming on. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. So we've all heard about the uh, whis- Whiskey Rebellion. Some of us probably know a little bit about it. But do you think people in western Pennsylvania know as much as they should about it? You know, John, I really don't. Uh, I've been a lifelong Pittsburgher. I'm a Slippery Rock graduate. Uh, and I live on a property that borders one of the men who was arrested in the Whiskey Rebellion. And the interesting thing is I think a lot of people listening to this could probably say that. Uh, This is the second largest domestic rebellion behind only the Civil War. It's the greatest crisis of George Washington's presidency, and it happened all over western Pennsylvania. But it's one of those really important national stories uh, that's often overlooked. So I felt that it was time to revisit it. Well, I grew up in Scott Township. Uh, A lot of the history happened right down the, literally, down the street from me. Um, So where did most of the action take place? Well, the Whiskey Rebellion is going to be a four-year event uh, from the summer of 1791, really till uh, the winter of 1795. But when you talk about the major flashpoints in that in that event, you're dealing with a lot of places in Allegheny County, also Washington County. Most of the leadership of what will become the rebellion are Revolutionary War veterans, believe it or not, uh, and many of them fighting with the same rifles and muskets they fought with during the revolution and many of them fighting for the same ideals that they believed that they defended in 1776. Uh, But this is really focused on, in a general sense, the lower corner of southwestern Pennsylvania. Today's Allegheny County, Washington County, Fayette County, uh, Westmoreland County, and Greene County. Oh, uh, taxes were kind of a big deal for the, uh, for the, uh, revolutionaries back in the 1770s um and so this was about a tax also uh and it and so people back then must have been pretty sensitive about taxes to to rebel about this what was what was their complaint what was their beef well john the way this develops is you know the economy of the west and i i know we don't think of this area as the west anymore but at one point it was a very wild west Uh, The economy of this region was almost entirely based on corn. We grew more corn here than anywhere else in America. Uh, And that was true all along the frontier, from South Carolina to to New York. And those people would distill that corn into whiskey. Uh, Whiskey was valuable. It was easily traded, much easier to move than mountains of corn, right? Uh, So that was very much what drove the economy of the West. 
and the Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, in the capital of Philadelphia, uh, was tasked with really writing America's economic ship. We had a lot of major economic issues, rampant unemployment after the revolution, and really we needed to reestablish a place for ourselves in the world. So Hamilton developed this big sweeping plan in 1790, and part of that was uh, driven by an excise tax, that is to say a tax on something made here in America, the first one ever, on whiskey. Uh, He didn't believe Westerners uh, paid taxes very readily, and that was true. There wasn't a lot of money out here because we didn't print money yet or coin uh, or mint coins. So um, for, for Hamilton, taxing whiskey seemed like the easiest way to bring them into the economic fold. Uh, but part of it, too, was, and I think a lot of previous historians have been um, slow to dig into this, is that Hamilton had a real distaste for the, the folks of the West. Um, he didn't believe they were productive members of society. He was a New York City guy. He believed the future of the American economy would be driven by very rich people like Robert Morris, who lived nearby. Uh, He didn't believe people who just grew enough food for themselves and maybe a little extra really moved the economic ball forward. So he put a lot of things in this whiskey tax, which were really unfair to whiskey farmers. Uh, Tax breaks for bigger distillers, really over-the-top punishments for those who don't pay the tax, one of them being up to four years of income, another being the government just outright taking your land uh, via default. So there's a lot of things that Westerners felt were unfairly targeting them that fueled them to this violent response uh, over time. And having looked at the, the material, I can't say I disagree with them. How violent was the response? John, you know, initially things in 1791 were very peaceful. Uh, There was meetings in individual counties. Uh, There was a large meeting right in downtown Pittsburgh at the sign of the Green Tree Tavern today uh, along what is today uh, Fort Pitt Boulevard. And they signed resolves and they put their signatures on it and they sent it to Congress as the new Constitution said was their right. Uh, But very quickly they found that their voices weren't being heard in the way they liked. Uh, Hamilton reduced the tax by exactly one penny in response to their very legitimate concerns. So the way that they showed their dismay, the way that they showed their animus and anger toward the federal government was by attacking federal agents who lived here in and around Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh was not just the biggest city of this region, but in many ways, it was the federal capital of the whole frontier. There was Fort Fayette. Fort Pitt was gone by that point. There were federal agencies and offices in Pittsburgh. Uh, so as tax collectors would leave the city, they would be attacked. They'd be beaten. One man was uh, had his head shaved with a straight razor uh, very carelessly. He talked about blood pouring down his face, uh, and he had hot tar boiled all over his body, second- and third-degree burns. As a result, one man... Uh, was dragged into the woods and had uh, hot branding irons from a forge shoved into his stomach. Uh, another was horse-whipped. Many tax collectors were burned and their families attacked. It was a really uh, challenging time for George Washington's presidency uh, in an event that really shook America. We call it the Whiskey Rebellion, but in the 18th century, they didn't call it that. They called it the Western Insurrection. 
which is much more frightening. Yeah, and um, it's hard to imagine Joe Biden uh, leading the troops anywhere, much less uh, into western Pennsylvania to put down an insurrection. Uh, but that's what George Washington did. He had to, he, I guess he led the charge, right? Yeah, Washington was, was watching this fairly closely from 1793 to 94, but for the first two years when it really got out of control, a lot of that was delegated to Hamilton. Uh, he would ask Hamilton, what's going on in the West? Is it under control? And Hamilton, really, I think, knowing full well what was happening here, kept the president a little bit in the dark. I think he wanted things to get out of control so he could respond with force. Again, he had a real distaste for the people here, and he knew that they didn't respect him or the president either. Um, and Western Pennsylvania had a long history of that. You know, Colonel Henry Bouquet in 1764, he said Pittsburgh was a colony sprung from hell because no one respected British authority at that time here either. So this was a long tradition. But by 1794, we see the Whiskey Rebels surround the city of Pittsburgh, again, very important federal city, uh, and threaten to destroy it. And we'll call upon Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland to raise 13,000 men. Uh, and he will lead them himself here into the West. It's the first and only time that uh, a sitting president would ever lead troops in the field. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned President Biden right, leading troops. George Washington was 20 years younger, and they still call him the old man. <laughs> and he, and uh, so they, they must have, uh, they didn't destroy the city of Pittsburgh, so what happened? How did they prevent the uh, the, the whiskey rebel? How, how did they prevent the rebellion from destroying the city? Well, uh, uh, an attorney named David Bradford out of Washington, PA, a very up and coming city in the West, uh, would kind of take control of the whiskey rebellion and kind of make it his own uh, his own asset for his own power. And he was the one that really orchestrated this sort of insidious attack on Pittsburgh. He ordered the mail coming out of the, the city raided and, and, and read. Um, he sent uh, emissaries toward the Spanish Empire in Louisiana to try and allow Allegheny County and, 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 and Westmoreland and Washington County to join the Spanish Empire, if you believe that or not. He was really at the helm of that. Uh, but as Washington was barreling down on, on Pittsburgh, thankfully, uh, these rebels lose their nerve. Uh, because 13,000 men, that's no small army. And it was one of the largest, even during the revolution. Um, and they were coming here. So um, he, Bradford did make a play on Pittsburgh. He would march into the city. Uh, the women of Pittsburgh kind of saved the city. They met the Whiskey Rebels with kegs of beer and plates of sausages and cheese and, and whiskey. And the Rebels all got drunk and full, and they... <laughs> Slowly, they slowly escorted them back across the Mon on, on barges. They saved the city that way. It's, it's almost unbelievable. But by the time Washington's army gets here, most of them run for the hills. Uh, and as a result, I say this in the book, that 13,000-man army becomes the largest police force in American history. They begin arresting anyone who was involved in the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, they'll arrest uh, close to 200 people. They'll arrest them on the fly without warrants. They'll lock them in basements. They'll, uh, in one instance, this is November of 1794. They made the men march from Washington 
to Pittsburgh in the Chartier's Creek uh, barefoot for no reason other than to inflict torment on them. Uh, so when it's all said and done, they'll take about two dozen men back to Philadelphia, the ones they actually had strong evidence against, and they will drag them by their wrists on horseback uh, the whole way across the state. They'll get them into Philadelphia. They'll parade them through the city. People will throw tomatoes and things at them and really humiliate them. Uh, and that, that parade ends at George Washington's doorstep. And one onlooker said that he smiled approvingly at the display. Most of them would spend a year in prison. Uh, they couldn't get witnesses. They couldn't get any, anyone to testify from out here in the West for obvious reasons. So they had to steadily let them go. Um, and in the end, two men will be found guilty. They'll be sentenced to hang. Washington is okay with that. Some of the Quakers in Philadelphia petition him uh, to his godly side, spare these men's lives, and Washington, in, in a pretty close call, uh, will ultimately pardon them. Wow. I, I, no wonder there's a rivalry, rivalry between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. They you bet. Yeah. They, <laughs> that's a great story. Um, and we're, we're <laughs> That's just amazing. Um, we're, we're talking to Brady Kreitzer. He's the uh, author of a book called Whiskey Rebellion, a Distilled History of an American Crisis, which I'm going to read immediately, by the way. This is really great stuff. Um, and uh, you got to tell us about John Neville, because i got about three minutes left here. I grew up in the South Hills, and anybody who lives in Mount Lebanon, Scott Township, Bethel Park, anywhere out there, everybody knows where Bower Hill Road is. It's a main road between Mount Lebanon and Bridgeville, I guess you would say. <clears throat> but zillions of people living around there. It's So... Um, I was, I'm stunned that I wasn't taught this. I don't remember being a, a taught this in school about the Bower Hill Plantation, which I guess was down near where Our Lady of Grace Church is right now. And who was John Neville and what happened at, at the Bower Hill Plantation? Well, John Neville was one of the richest men in the West. Uh, he was a loyal ally of President Washington. He was a general in the Revolution. He served with Washington in Valley Forge and through New Jersey and was taken captive at the Siege of Charleston. He was a, a diehard Federalist in a region that really didn't like that early political movement. Uh, and he was a whiskey distiller. So uh, when the Whiskey Act went into effect, Washington gave Neville the commission as the primary tax collector in this region. He was well-liked, even by the farmers. He was respected. Uh, but he became the target of a lot of their outrage and violence as the Whiskey Rebellion really spun out of control. He lived, as you mentioned, John, right, right where you grew up, on a large plantation called Bower Hill. He was from Virginia, and he had upwards of 80 enslaved peoples on that plantation, uh, far more uh, enslaved peoples than, than, than uh, really anyone else in the region. Um, and that, that mansion, it was a large plantation, several outbuildings, in July of 1794, became the real flashpoint for the Whiskey Rebellion before the raid on Pittsburgh, if you would, uh, because you had about 700 farmers surround that building. They engaged in a firefight with Neville and some federal troops inside. Neville had all the records of who did and did not pay their taxes. So the rebels believed, rightfully so, if they got those books and destroyed them, they were off the hook. Uh, in the end, the Battle of Bower Hill would be a two-day battle. You would see people killed. Uh, and the Whiskey Rebels burned the entire plantation to the ground. Um, and when you go uh, 
toward the site today, just up the hill from old St. Luke's Church there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You will see a blue sign for the Pennsylvania History and Museum Commission. Uh, But the the entire plantation is gone. Um, There's a hospital built over the site now. Uh, But it was one of those stunning moments when President Washington and his cabinet really saw uh, the situation is growing, growing out of control. Well, hey, um, Brady, I don't know how anybody would not want to read this book, If uh, anybody who's in western Pennsylvania especially. Uh, I know I'll be reading it. It's uh, right up my alley. I love this stuff. I, uh, I thank you for coming on the show, and good luck with the book. I hope everybody buys it. Hey, thanks so much, John. That's Brady Kreitzer. The book, again, is Whiskey Rebellion, A Distilled History of an American Crisis. Read it and make your kids read it. So I'm glad we got that history lesson, uh, and again, uh, that that book is um, is really something that everybody ought to get. Uh, the, the Whiskey Rebellion, a distilled history. Uh, it, it's um, it's something that, again, as I said to uh, Brady Kreitzer, the author of the book, just a few minutes ago, I'm stunned that we didn't learn more about that in uh, school growing up. Um, I, I, everybody's heard of the Whiskey Rebellion. He mentioned in there St. Luke's Church. I ride by that church, I don't know, once, maybe once a week. Maybe I'm down in that area a lot. I'm always riding by it. It's it's probably a half a mile through the woods from where I grew up, and it's a little, just a little church that sits there. It's uh, well, obviously, it's like 200 years old, um, over 200 years old, and it's um, it was it was right there in the middle of the Whiskey Rebellion. And I'm just, I'm always amazed that I grew up there within a mile of what he was describing there, the description he gave of the the Bower, the, the Battle of Bower Hill. Bower Hill Road was the road that I, I went down every day of my life to go to school. That's the way I went from, I went from my house to school on Bower Hill Road. Everybody went on Bower Hill Road because every street was off of Bower Hill Road, and, and um uh, it was a big deal in my life. I'm boring you to death with it because you didn't live near Bower Hill Road. But my point is, uh, and I'm sure this isn't the only uh, case where this is um, a, where this is the case. It's it's there's a lot of history here in Western PA, and I don't think the the, the kids going to school are are told enough about it. And it might you know pique their interest a little bit. I know I would have maybe sat up a little bit and paid attention if the if the history teacher would have said, "Hey, see out the window over there in that apple orchard? Well, there was a gigantic battle over there. The guy owned a plantation with sixty slaves, and many people were killed. And it was called the Battle of Bower Hill. There has to be other examples of that all over Western Pennsylvania, where where stuff has happened right under history teachers' noses." And they haven't told us about it. So I say, start telling them about it. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.